Imagine for a moment that you're standing in front of a maze, a complicated maze, with a group of strangers. You know nothing about them, but you do know that the guy standing right next to you, he invented the maze. And let's say that lives depend on you solving this maze. But try as you might, you can't figure it out. But you know it's your job to find the end. You search and search, but all you find are walls, dead ends. After a while, you decide to head back to the beginning, planning to start over. Standing there is the architect. He hasn't moved. He's staring off stoically. He knows you're looking at him. He likes knowing that you need him. You beg for answers. You beg for a way out. He turns slowly, and with a blank, expressionless look, he gives you direction. You feel immediate relief, and you head off in the directed path but it's not long before you realize you've been lied to. Defeated and confused, you and the rest of the group return to the start again. The maze builder, still there. You notice his gaze is now fixated on the woman to your immediate left. You can feel that they know each other, well. And then it clicks. He's doing this because of her. It's all about her. You know that you need to help her. You know that you need to help the lives that hang in the balance, but the maze is too complicated. You know that the architect, the quiet man, the spiteful man standing in front of you might be the only way. That's how the police and Tanya felt, and still feel today. John Skelton is the maze builder, of course, the man responsible for the disappearance of the boys. The police had hundreds of avenues to travel and search, but... They haven't been able to find the right one, yet. Hearts and lives have been broken, but the architect, the quiet man, the spiteful man, he just sits there, holding on to the only truth that really matters. A frantic search in the town of Morency. The brothers are ages five, seven, and nine. They're from the town of Morency, Michigan. We know their dad lied to police. This community is beginning to fear the worst Still no sign tonight of Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner Skelton. It's very difficult because you're trying to put together a puzzle that, uh, you know, has been assembled, reassembled uh, multiple times by different agencies and different investigators. Puzzle, maze, whatever metaphor you want to use, this hasn't been easy for anyone involved. Investigators are still trying to crack this case, knowing full well that all the answers are stored away in one man's head. There's a lot of information about this case only the investigators know. There are names of people that John claims helped him take the boys. But because the investigation is still very active, Detective Jeremy Brewer can't say much. I'd rather not comment on that. I don't know that I'm comfortable really speculating on that at this point. I'd rather not have that go out on the air. I'd rather not get into any of that at this point. Lieutenant Detective Jeremy Brewer of the Michigan State Police conceded this much. They are closer to solving this case now than they were four years ago. And four years ago, this case belonged to Larry Weeks. He was there at the very beginning. He was Morency's police chief at the time the boys went missing. You know, certainly there was some background behind it. Is that the date had been having marital difficulties. Um, I, I I don't know that I initially went to, you know, where we're at now. Uh, initially, it was 
a lot of searching, hoping that they'd been, uh, you know, turned over to a family member, a friend, uh, an acquaintance or something, and it was some sort of child uh, custodial ploy to try to, you know, ultimately keep the children. Um, and it wasn't until much later on that, you know, we felt like, or I felt like it was going in a much more horrible direction. It's really, you know, looking for a needle in a stack of needles. Larry Weeks is now the police chief in Eaton Rapids, Michigan. He left his post in Morency back in 2013. The case was handed over to the Michigan State Police and Detective Lieutenant Jeremy Brewer. Officer Brewer was given the task of solving a case that was about three years old. They say the first 48 hours are the most important when solving any case. Imagine taking this one on about 26,000 hours later. We basically start from the very beginning, uh, working it as much as possible like it is just, you know, the case had just come in. Now, obviously, that's, you can't do that um, in its truest form due to the fact that you're getting it, uh, you know, several months and years later. But we have a couple things on our side um, with already, you know, knowing the statements that John Skelton made and the information that was provided. So we, you know, while I tend to believe that he's not being honest with us, the information he, that he did give, we try to track that down. We, we really ran down, you know, a lot of the stories that John Skelton told us. We've, we've taken that so far down the path that he led us, has led us down. And we, we just, as I've stated, we haven't been able to, obviously we haven't found the boys yet. So um, it would really be helpful if he wanted to, um, you know, be more of an asset in this to us, which um, when it's when involving your own children, um, you know, it's not like this guy was a friend of the family or someone who was, was a distant relation or an acquaintance or even a stranger. I mean, he's the boy's father. And the fact that, you know, seven years later, we still don't have have the boys or any knowledge of, uh, of where they're at necessarily is disturbing. And as a father, one would think if he had no involvement uh, with something very tragic happening, that he would give us everything. If he's truly innocent in this, that you think he would be fighting every day to get his boys back. And what I can say is that I do not get that feeling from him that he um, really cares about that whatsoever. John's inability to tell the truth isn't just a problem, it's the problem. His current residence is Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility. That's in Ionia, Michigan. He's in segregation, otherwise known as solitary. John hasn't been charged with murder because there's no proof of murder. Instead, he's been charged with unlawful imprisonment of his children, which carries a sentence of 10 to 15 years. The earliest John could be a free man is November 29th, 2020, but that's not likely. He continues to lie to police, offering no helpful information. Police usually don't appreciate that kind of behavior. I am trying to get an interview with John, so stand by for an update on that. But back to the guys charged with solving the case, and back to Black Friday, 2010, early morning. John's cell phone registers with a tower close to his home in Morency. Chief Weeks recounts John's travels, the window in which police believe the boys were disposed of in one way or another. It was around 429 that, that uh, on Friday morning that John's phone is it located moving d- down near, uh, down into Ohio. Uh, yeah, 429, he's about 3.3 miles from his home. Um, and then at, again at uh, 5 a.m., uh, he's near Holiday City, uh, 
pioneer Ohio with his with the phone. And then at 6.46, approximately, he's back home uh, based on the phone traffic. So assuming he had his phone in his possession, sometime between 04.29, he drove down into Ohio and he was back home around 6.46. It's this window of time that I, I suspect that, um, you know, he did something with the boys. And, you know, we'd, we searched uh, for any potential witnesses that may have been out and about that Friday morning. Being a Black Friday morning, we'd really hoped that maybe there was a shopper or somebody leaving early that may have seen John out and about during that time. We'd released information about, the, you know, their blue van and in hopes that if anybody had seen it, they'd call in. And, and that's really the window of time that if there's any, you know, remaining witnesses out there, any information, uh, you know, during that about hour and a half or so of where he went and what he did, I think if we can get that information, that would be really helpful to helping Detective Brewer move closer to solving this thing. Two hours and 17 minutes. John's cell phone signal provided the police and FBI with a map. A map that was combed through over and over again. While Chief Weeks compared the search to finding a needle in a stack of needles, Detective Lieutenant Jeremy Brewer uses a more common comparison. Uh, it's a needle in a haystack, obviously. There's a lot of rural farm country in that area, but we have searched in mass uh, with search parties and things and, and so many hundreds and hundreds of acres. John wasn't a professional criminal, adept at masterminding crimes. He was a truck driver from Morency. But don't think for a second that he's not a smart guy. He's a very intelligent individual who um, is very calculating. Tanya agrees. He's very intelligent, very smart. Here's Chief Weeks. What was your takeaway from the kind of person he was? Uh, generally, my opinion about John and the communication that I've had with him is that he's uh, you know, just generally very selfish, very focused on his own issues and his own perspective of how things should be, has uh, very little concern about um, anybody else. I struggle to provide for the boys. Um, you know, you got a house payment, you got utilities, food, clothes, that kind of thing. But yet, he always made sure that he had his cigarettes and his beer. How often are you talking to him? I guess that's a good place to start. Um, Here's lead investigator Jeremy Brewer. You know, I do talk to him in the jail uh, periodically. Uh, I'd rather not give specifics on that uh, as far as what goes out on the on the podcast. But I guess, uh, you know, it can be said that he is uh, talked to on on a fairly regular basis uh, down there. And, um, you know, there is that open line of communication there. It's not it's not really adversarial. You know, we want to make sure that, hey, if he's got some information to share, that we can come in and and have a good rapport built with each other. And um, he needs to trust us, and we need, to, we need to trust him, quite honestly. And there's not a lot of trust factor with, with there with the father who, who uh, can do this. But at the same time, he's the person that has, holds all the keys with this case. So uh, we, do, we do talk to him, you know, uh, when the time is right for us. And um, there is an open, open line of communication there. So do you get the sense that he enjoys that process, or is it like he reluctantly talks to you guys? I get the sense that he, he's in segregation, and so he is very limited in the contacts that he can have, whether it be by spoken word, written word. He does not have access to phones. Um, 
And so basically it's just by the written written letter, um, you know, sending them out and receiving them. And so it very well could be that he just wants to talk to us because he, um, you know, he's by himself 23 hours a day. That I don't know. Um, I do know that some conversations have been better than others when we've talked to him about things. Obviously, it's a very uncomfortable subject when, when the topic of the boys does come up. He knows that it's a very, uh, he has to be careful uh, in his mind of what he says. And uh, we understand that. And we just try to uh, make him realize that I'm not out to get him. I'm out to find the boys. Could there be any validity to John's story that that Tanya was in fact abusive in multiple ways to the children, and this his his attempt to keep the children out of harm's way. There's certainly no in, information that uh, that's involved in this investigation that indicates that whatsoever. And and in fact, uh, you know, the in, information collected during my time handling this investigation was all to the contrary. That uh, you know, John has likely done something nefarious with the children. If his family felt like the kids would not be safe with the mother, we've we've told him we will go down the path of trying to get them in the custody of a third party that he would feel safe uh, with the kids being there until they got old enough to be on their own or to make some decisions on their own. And, you know, I, I firmly advocated for that. It's not about who gets the kids at this point for me because that's not, that's not my job to decide. My job is to find the boys, and when presented with all the options that we could possibly present him, there's still not a strong feeling that I get from him that he really, really cares. So that tells me a couple things that he, number one, that the boys um, aren't in a position to, they're never going to go to anybody because they're either deceased or uh, whatever he did with them, that it, it doesn't really matter to who they go to because he's never going never gonna to see him again. That's what we're left to deduce because of what we know about this case. Both Chief Weeks and Detective Lieutenant Brewer are fathers. They both know what it's like to care for children, keep them safe, make sure they have whatever they need. They get nurturing. They get what a parent's love feels like, and conversely, they know what it's like to be loved by their child. It has no parallel. In the news business, anchors are often asked how they can read and report such horrible events day in and day out. They'll tell you it's their job and that they have to power through. They'd also tell you that it's not easy, not in the least. So what about being an officer? I don't think us, as civilians, think about that often. Well, I think there's a benefit to having a personal attachment a little bit. Um, obviously, if we were not caring individuals, we would not be good at our jobs. There's, there's a sense of you that has to remove yourself and, and be able to operate, um, you know, operate it, uh, look at the science of it and look at the, the evidence and follow that. But if as an officer you don't have your heart in it and don't show a personal side, then there's something wrong with that too. Here's Chief Weeks. Well, for me, the emotional part of this case um, is not so much me being a parent as much as it has to do with my personal connections with the people involved. You know, the people we brought in to interview or you know, witnesses, and you know, Tanya and her family and her parents, um, you know, these people that I knew, these were, you know, uh, it's not like a larger community where, you know, you have a case come in and typically the person that walks through the door to make the initial report you've never seen before, never had any contact with. You know, these are these are people that I had routine contact with and knew and loved. 
There's a Facebook account devoted to Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner. You can find it by searching Missing Skelton Brothers. A post on the page's wall from December of 2014 reads, As I drive through downtown Morency, I can't help but see faded yellow ribbons, tattered and torn. Pictures faded. Playgrounds empty. The day is cold and gloomy. Winter is upon us. It seems that maybe everyone has forgotten about the three little boys that used to live here and now are missing and forgotten. That post was written by the account administrator. The boys haven't been forgotten, but as time moves on and distance settles in between now and then, they aren't talked about as much. That is true. But some people refuse to forget. People like Larry Weeks. As I'm sitting here in my office talking with you, I'm looking at the bulletin board across the other room, and I have the the boys' uh, missing poster uh, mounted there, so it's it's never very far from, from me. After the break, some disturbing Google searches from John Skelton's computer. When police got a hold of John Skelton's computer, they looked through the search history. Detective Jeremy Brewer explains what they found. Um, there was some searches done the night before um, at a computer at his residence. Uh, if, if him being the only adult that was there that we can prove that evening, and the searches were related to, um, I believe one of them was, does rat poison kill or does rat poison kill children? And something also along the lines of, can you break someone's neck with your hands? It's hard to hear. John would later tell police that the searches were done for the boys, that they had asked those questions, and that he was just trying to help them out. Given what we know now, this is really hard to swallow. And you know what? It's just terrible, saying that he was helping the boys, when everything inside me, and I'm sure you, tells you that this couldn't be further from the truth. That was probably the first uh, hard piece of evidence uh, you know, pointing in that direction. There was some circumstantial information that gave us pause for concern, but that was really the first hard piece of evidence that came forward that, you know, we were very concerned that something horrible had happened. Both Larry Weeks and Detective Brewer seem to have a lot of respect for Tanya. They know what we know. They know her past. They know more about her than we ever will. Here's Detective Brewer. She has come a long ways as far as her um, emotional fortitude. I know that she has made some great strides to, I don't even want to say move on because no one ever moves on from this, but for her to try to to salvage um, what emotional strength she can to be there for, you know, the new relationships that she has and for her daughters and for her other family members and for her community. So um uh, she she does a phenomenal job. I don't know how she does it. I really don't. I have a lot of respect for for her uh, for her family and how they um, how they have gotten through this. I don't want to make too big of a jump here, but it seems like you created some kind of bond with Tanya along the way. Is that true? Here's Chief Weeks. Certainly, early on, I, I have an enormous amount of respect for Tanya. Um, she's one of the strongest people I've ever met. Uh, having two children of my own. If, if I had to endure what she's had to endure, I don't know that I could do it, particularly with the under the pressure of the media and the 
family and friends that she's had to do it under. Um, I'm, I'm enormously impressed with her, and I think she's a, she's a wonderful person. Yes, I, 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 I did and I have. In my interactions with Chief Larry Weeks, he seems genuine and solid. And I'm not just throwing around words. He seems like the guy that you could trust to come through for you whenever, whatever the situation might be. The people I've spoken to about Chief Weeks say he's a good man, a good officer. This case, unsolved for nearly seven years, has to be hard on him. But he knows that he put every ounce he had into finding those boys. In the heat of things, as far as doing the investigation, rarely did a day go by where I didn't, you know, think, oh, is there something else I could do? Is there something I didn't do? You know, I, I feel like I did all I know to do and consulted with some very bright and intelligent people and to assure that we were doing that. Um, you know, when when I left Morency and uh, to come to Eaton Rapids, uh, you know, it was very difficult for me to do that in a lot of different ways. But, you know, the skeleton case certainly is one of those significant issues. It was difficult to, to, to deal with. But ultimately, one of the things I had hoped was, um, you know, by having a fresh set of eyes look at it, by turning it over to the state police, you know, my thinking was if there's anything I missed here, anything that could be done, you know, maybe they'll they'll catch it. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. I would have been happily embarrassed and ashamed if there, you know, if something had turned up. But at this point, you know, nothing has. So I, you know, it makes me feel even better that, you know, I did everything I know to do to to move the case forward. How much is this with you every day still? Uh, I'm a different person now. It's um, I just you know I view things differently. Uh, I. You know, I view my own children differently and their safety and concerns for them. And, uh, I respond to these types of calls differently with a, uh, you know, increased concern that, you know, have a repeat offense of something like this. So it just, it just changed. It's changed how I, I handle my own children. It changed how I uh, do police work. Um, because it's it, it's such a powerful situation that I wouldn't wish on anybody. If there was anything I could have done differently to try to encourage John to help us, you know, or disclose where the boys are at, you know, I would have done it. And that's really all that I want. You know, I just want him to tell us where they're at so, you know, we can close this thing out. At this point, oh, six and a half years later, do you think there's any way to solve this without John's cooperation? Well, you, you know, periodically see cases where, you know, people have been located several years later, uh, both alive and deceased. Um, it, it, it's not, you know, it doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. So, you know, it's possible that if they are deceased, that somebody comes across the clue that, you know, helps us locate where they're at. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's the one thing that could potentially happen. You know, it is entirely possible that somebody saw something that morning and has yet to come forward. Uh, you know, if John, during his morning uh, drive, uh, if he disposed of them somewhere, um, it's entirely possible somebody saw something and it's just yet to come forward. So I think that's, you know, that's possible. But short of John, you know, coming forward and giving us the information, I think it's going to be very difficult to... Um, to completely resolve their whereabouts. Do you think he'll ever give the information needed to solve the case? 
I, my impression of John is that due to his selfish nature, I just don't see him uh, being man enough to be able to step forward and do that. John has said that he um, gave the boys to a, a group, an organization or an underground group. Do you believe that that is a possibility? I hope it is. You know, I, I hope often that the information is, is correct and accurate and they're, you know, someplace on a farm somewhere and, you know, life is grand. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, having the information from the complete information from the investigation, uh, it, it does not seem probable or likely in any way to me. So what does seem probable, probable or likely? I think I've made it uh, clear all along, uh, you know, that based on the information and the investigation, it's my belief that, you know, John Skelton uh, murdered his sons. Do you think there's another living person on the face of the earth that knows what happened other than John? No. I'll be in touch with the officers and update you when possible, but I can promise you, it won't be the last time that you hear from either one of them. Going back to Tanya, I can't help but think of our second conversation, the one that you haven't heard yet. I mean, as shocking as our first talk was, the second one was unreal. Smashed, broke, cut, destroyed anything and everything that he could. I am really starting to get freaked out. He said that John had tried to kill himself. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where my kids are. So I'm a mess. Are my sons laying in this house? Did he flip out and do something? What they found was mass destruction. So much more on the next Shattered. If you have any information about this case, you can reach investigator Jeremy Brewer at... 517-636-0689, and that's right into my desk phone. If you'd like to see and hear more about the Skelton Boys and what's going on in Morency and how we're covering the ongoing search, go to ShatteredPodcast.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Shattered Podcast. And just the other day on our Facebook page, someone named Kelly wrote, Sadly, in 2010, when the boys went missing, it was my 41st birthday. And now this is a memory. I became friends with Tanya in 2013 at an MIM event. And MIM stands for Missing in Michigan. Even more sad is that we both have family members who are missing. We stand tall next to one another and have faith that one day we'll get the closure we need. Thanks for listening and writing in, Kelly. And one last thing. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing it with a friend and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those two things can help get the show in front of new people. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week.